So we learned it's really important early to kind of create the vision and you almost create a culture on each deal around sort of that vision. And if the vision isn't there, we also learn like we don't chase the deal. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Are you ready to unleash the potential of your business by growing an unbeatable global workforce? Our sponsor, Relay Human Cloud, helps you maximize this advantage by simplifying staff hosting and services overseas. So there is no need to worry about risk or any process-related issues. At the end of this episode, I'll share a little bit more about how Fort Capital has worked with Relay Human Cloud and reveal a special offer crafted for the loyal listeners of the Fort Podcast. Stay tuned for more. Have you or your business ever considered buying, selling, or trading in a private aircraft? Yes, I said private aircraft. Did you know that aircraft ownership can provide substantial tax benefits to maximize income tax savings? I'd like to share with you about a locally owned and operated business aviation company, Oshman Aviation Group. Oshman Aviation Group is an industry-leading pre-owned aircraft dealer specializing in business jets and turboprop providing aircraft sales, management, and consulting services for clients across the country. They buy and sell aircraft from their own inventory and offer brokerage services to clients whether they are looking to buy or sell. What makes Oshman Aviation Group succeed is their industry-leading market research, hands-on aircraft management experience, and attention to detail. Decisions are made based upon three strong core values of honesty, integrity, and ethics. The used aircraft marketplace can be arduous without industry relationships and proper representation. Market knowledge, experience, and an above-board attention to detail are pillars in every aircraft transaction. Whether buying or selling an aircraft, Oshman Aviation Group represents its clients from inception through a successful closing and beyond. The end goal of every transaction is to earn their clients' trust, which ultimately results in repeat business. To learn more about their aircraft sales or management services, you can visit their website at oshmanaviation.com. That's O-S-H-M-A-N-Aviation.com or by calling them at 940-222-8706. Let's just kind of talk about how you got into what you're doing today in in Urban Office because you started at Hillwood kind of in a totally different world and Hillwood's prolific. So maybe we can talk about what you learned there that kind of teed you up for the success you've had. Yeah, I'll roll it back a little from there. I uh, grew up in Longview, Texas, went to TCU. Go Frogs. Man, what a very, very fun uh, ride this year with a very hard landing. (laughs) (laughs) I was there and it was tough. Hard landing at TCU, hopefully soft landing with Jerome Powell. We'll see how the, the year shakes out. Yes, that's right. But when I was a sophomore in college, I got my license and through just, you know, people in Fort Worth. Got my first internship at the time was Huff Browse McDowell Montese. Then it kind of morphed into a couple of different companies. And I was only there a year, but totally fell in love with the business. Just this sort of locker room mentality at a brokerage firm, all the guys, seeing how well you could do, not being capped on your upside. But towards the end of that that year, 
I kind of, I guess I was interested in, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I was sort of seeking something more complex where you could put together a sort of tougher jigsaw puzzle than like traditional brokerage that would potentially have more reward and I don't know, maybe building something through a close family friend, a guy named Carl Ewert in Dallas got introduced to a guy named Philip Williams who owned Emerson Partners. So I spent my last year at TCU driving back and forth to Dallas, working at Emerson Partners where I started like, literally getting Phillip's car washed and going get in the mail and which I was having a ton of fun here and really leaned in on, you know, do I want to stay in Fort Worth? Coming from Longview, it was a great natural transition. And uh, after those five years sort of led to uh, five years at Emerson Partners, which were wonderful. I learned a ton and got to work my way up sort of through that process. Had a chance to go sit next to Todd Blatt at Hillwood, who's the CEO of the Hillwood Investments uh, Division. So that's different than like Mike Berry's uh, uh, alliance, but it was amazing for a kid from Longview, Texas with a GPA from TCU that is not on my resume. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Yep. You can sit there and see all that. So what'd yeah. you do on the investment side that's different than like what people think of at Alliance? Well, so Alliance has this amazing program. Mike Berry's an incredible leader and they've got a great team. They have this amazing project that they initially, especially then, I guess this was almost 20 years ago now, mm -hmm. were really focused on kind of building that out one or two buildings at a time. They were starting to diversify asset classes. Circle T was happening. They're sort of focused on that one geographic area. We kind of had the rest of the country. Okay. Of course, as soon as I leave and start doing urban office, Hillwood starts an urban office division under <laughs> Mike. So um, I missed that opportunity. But... At the it time, was an ode to you. <laughs> That's right. They were very worried, I'm sure. But we, it was interesting. It was a tough time at first because I had been, I was a finance major, but I, you know, I'd been kind of out doing leasing and acquisitions. I didn't truly understand how to do the kind of deep dive modeling. And I got to put in this chair and these huge deals were floating around and coming through. And I don't think Todd ever opened Excel. You would print stuff and give it to him. And I didn't have anyone to really teach me. So it was a tough time at first, but I just had to kind of bear down, especially since I'd been out in the community, you know, networking, doing tours, you know, doing all the things you do as a, you know, as a small real estate operating company. All of a sudden I'm sitting in a chair all day long, every day not even knowing what I'm doing, trying to teach myself how to work through these 10 megabyte Excel models that were just a mess. And <laughs> I remember it was six months in, I'd work every Saturday. I was like, at least I'm going to show up before Todd and stay after, which is not easy. He's a kind of famous early riser, hard charger. And um, I sat down with Todd and said, I said, I'm not really making the kind of money I want to make. And I'm not earning half of what you're paying me. I'm worthless up here. He said, you're doing good. Actually, you're you're putting in the hours, putting in the work. He said, and everything's actually about to change. I've just hired someone from New York who has an investment banking background. I'm going to put him right next to you. And you're going to teach him the real estate end. He's going to teach you the finance end. So I got to learn from uh, a guy named John Helton, who now works with Jonas Woods. Okay. He's been with Jonas for a long time. 
but we sort of sat next to each other and taught me how you model, you know, like these guys in New York do. And once I got that figured out real quick. Yeah. Sorry. How did the guys, it's a long way of answering your question, but okay. But how did the guys in New York do it? If you had to like summarize, what's, what does that even mean? So if you just get into Excel, I don't know how much time you've really spent, but I'm kind of an Excel dork by now. There are a lot of ways to model and connect things up. There's a very efficient way of doing it where you can create very complex formulas that can draw off all these different pages and create these different summaries. And it can get extremely detailed and then complex enough where if one thing's off somewhere, the whole model could be wrong. And if you're working on a small one-off industrial deal, you can catch that. Just yeah. But if you're working on a $250 million or a whatever, however many billion dollar deal, I mean, you can get way off really quick. And yeah. just is, uh, I think I might have a tinge of ADD. So trying to help sit down and conquer that and efficiently uh, structure those kind of models was, yeah, it was a real test. Got it. It was good. Got through it. But Cool. Yeah, so... Once I got that figured out, it opened up a ton of opportunity because you can imagine working somewhere like that. Interesting things find you all the time, all over the country, sometimes all over the world. And I luckily had the background of being able to go in and understand the real estate, at least on some level. So when there was something interesting in a new market, I could essentially get to buy a plane ticket and we'd go pop out there and go see if it made sense. Could triangulate relationships, which Hillwood obviously has a ton, and go figure out if it was worth pursuing further or not. And then just kind of supporting, you know, the team and the process. Uh, all the industrial that we had, uh, which Tal Hicks led that team, uh, Hillwood Investment Properties, um, was all rolled up while I was there in those kind of early days into a joint venture with Clarion that was really interesting to put together. I think 65% of these assets were all in this just-in-time inventory and trying to put all those together into one big deal, bring in an equity partner and it was just a really interesting time. When I first started, investment summaries were like it had to be on two pages, like front and back. And Ross has an amazing intuition. So he could just be handed a deal and he could sort of immediately beat in on the important sort of metrics. By the time I left, it was just his equity then. By the time I left, there was like two or three levels in the capital stack and just sort of getting to learn all that as the company was really learning it with those kind of resources was pretty amazing. Was Ross pretty involved? Extremely. Okay. I mean, not in all the day to day. Yeah. The good leader, great family, just amazing things that they've done. Um, a lot of which no one ever knows about. You yeah. Know, they're not doing to get attention. I think he was just trained really well. He's obviously intelligent anyway, but trained well by his father on how to sort of beat in on the right sort of fundamentals of what deal or relationship or whatever. So he was definitely always involved and always available if needed. So you are learning all this stuff. And then at some point, we were just talking uh, beforehand, there became this, um, I'll, I'll say it's prolific, 20-page business plan that started to form over multi-years. Maybe what kicked that off and what was the original plan if you were to leave Hillwood? A couple of years before I left, I started. we started working with some third-party other sort of sponsors. So we would help provide the capital to those guys. And we were growing and scaling. And as you know, industrial is, you know, 
is very institutional. It definitely was becoming more so. Cost of capital was coming down. Obviously, cap rates, we thought they were compressing then. This is, you know, it's amazing, like, where they are now. <laughs> and I started to sort of have these ideas of, like, the kind of, I think, what you're doing now, this aggregation strategy where I could focus on our local industrial market, maybe some small office if you were on, this didn't work at Hillwood, I actually sort of tried that on, but the scale wasn't enough to go buy these one-off smaller buildings with a team that big and efficient. Just the thought was, if you're on your own and you did this, you could probably figure out a way to, at a minimum, looking back, I think the whole model was over like a 10-year period, if I could place X amount of capital with these kind of returns under these splits, how do I make 10 million bucks over 10 years? And if I thought there was a way to do that where I could wear blue jeans to the office, be local, be in the every sort of know every street corner and everything going on, that was more interesting to me. So I was kicking the idea around and then had an interesting period where I was kind of always plugged in. I still am, but I had a period where I was forced to sort of unplug for about a month. And came back and realized how much I, you know, I love this industry. I love the business, but I just didn't love my job. And if I couldn't love it with best in class operator with so many good people there, then obviously it's, it's me, not them. And just sort of help kind of push me to go take the jump. When you say be local, which is obviously critical in real estate, what does be local mean to you? You said knowing every street corner, but what? As you think back now today, if you're truly like local, what advantage do you have that somebody flying in from New York to look at the market doesn't have? If you think about what really defines the sport that we're in and the best operators, it's all really information and how you trade on that information. Brokerage community has a lot of amazing all-stars. So working those relationships to understand, um, you know, what they know and make sure they understand what you're looking for and make sure you get a look at those deals. Yep. And then knowing real time where rates are, where vacancies are, where, where deals are striking things that you can get the high level overview, you know, if you just fly in and do a tour or meet with people, but really gaining an intuition for that, the thought was really kind of become an expert in your trade, which is lost. I think a lot you know, with capital allocation and whatnot, they don't have time to do that. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So you've kind of come full circle where we started on this 20 piece puzzle. Yeah. And we'll kind of move there. So you, you decide it's time to leave. Um, you now run a company called Quadrant Investment Properties. Was that the first thing? Is that exactly what happened when you left Hillwood? You formed this company? So it's kind of funny. I had the 20 page business plan and I was sitting in a little conference room at Hillwood with a mentor of mine who worked on Hillwood deals. He's kind of like a consultant. They would bring him in on these huge deals and he would sort of take a look at them. He had been, he was a lot older than me. Um, He was like grandparents age or whatever. And I had laid all these metrics out and again, 20 pages of, you know, market info and where we would go and how capital would be struck, et cetera. And he stopped me and he's pretty gruff. And he said, hold on, how much money do you have in your bank account? I said, I have X amount in my bank account. He said, how much do you need to live with your wife or whatever for a year? I said, I have Y. X was two, two times Y, right? So I had two years of money sort of set aside. He said, 
what are you waiting for? So sooner or later, you just have to effing jump. Yeah. And it struck me. I was like, yeah, I can't line all this up. I could probably go try to tie up a deal or something on the side, but that didn't feel right. Um, so that really sort of, that kind of pushed me over the edge. So are you like everybody else that comes up with a business plan? It's like fun to make. And then it turns into kindling by like the third day of the business. Yeah. I, so I quit on a Friday and a friend that actually worked at Hillwood, you know, called when the email goes out. So what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. I had a good buddy who we were going to go lease the, there's a little office space in Snyder Plaza in Dallas over the bike shop. We're going to go help lease some of this space for the owner and get a free little suite and just go try to find deals and just kind of sit together. And I told this guy that, and he was like, no, 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 you need to meet Michael Young. And who I recognized his name, he had been, uh, he had helped facilitate a large joint venture with Brookfield where Hillwood was going to help acquire assets all over the country, you know, with them as our third party LP. And that was, that was the opportunity that was going to, I got to pick if I wanted West, US, or East. I would have taken West, by the way. And that was another, like, if I can't get excited about that, with you know, these two groups together, I need to sort of go push. But uh, I had only met him one time and I had been in one meeting. And so I ended up having breakfast with him the following Tuesday and was sort of outlining my thoughts on what I wanted to do. And he sort of countered me with, you know, what if me and a couple of our sort of investor partners help kind of back your company. I was conscious that I would need GP capital and that I need balance sheet support even for non-recourse debt. And I really wanted to be around someone. I didn't want to be all by myself sitting at my home office or wherever would find somewhere to go. I liked that they had uh, successfully executed a lot of alternative real estate asset strategies from trailer homes to Rust Belt mortgages, different kind of just whatever was in vogue. Uh, so we started piecing together. Again, I never brought that business plan out with them. It just gave me this sort of confidence I could try, try to do it. And we sort of struck a, a GP partnership deal on like five bullet points. What's a GP partnership deal to you? It's very interesting because I've learned a lot about those over time. They're different. Yeah, they're all different. You talk to different guys. And for me, the priority in the beginning was just get out there ensure that I'll have enough running room to succeed and ideally have some kind of partners that aren't just passive capital, but they can help, you know, look at a deal when I have one or even maybe deals come in through them or whatever it was. So in this instance, it was some capital available for overhead support if needed. Luckily, we didn't have to drain that too much. A couple of times we did, but we were able to pay it back with, you know, our fees. Um, and then GP Capital, enough to sort of get a deal done. And then uh, balance sheet support in that instance. And in exchange for a split of the promo up. Was that initial strategy what you're doing today? Or did it morph into what you're doing today? And maybe we can use yeah. that as a way to say, what are you doing today? What right. is Urban Office? And then what has anything changed over the last, I don't know, how long have you been doing this? 12 years, 15 years? Uh, almost 11. 11, okay. So, yeah, that same mentor that helped me sort of jump uh, introduced me the first summer I left, 2012, to one of his close friends. They had played on the offensive line at UCLA together way, 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 way back when. 
whose name uh, is Wayne Rakovich. He's in Los Angeles. And there was a random deal in LA that popped up. So in the early days, I had contacts out there from Hillwood. We had spent a little time on it. And on a trip, I was got to go meet with Wayne. And I didn't sort of realize who he was. But as I sort of dug in and talked to some friends out there, realized he was the premier adaptive reuse creative office developer in LA. And he kind of took a liking to me. He saw me starting out and I remember we're on a trip and give me two bits of advice or two things that sort of changed my life. One was, what are you doing out here? He goes, I don't know the Dallas market, but I've flown over it and it looks like there's plenty of real estate there. Do you think you're going to come out here and outsmart all of us? Which is a good point. The second was, he said, you know, what time's your flight? I said, I've got like four hours. He goes, okay, I want you to leave right now. I want you to go to a project we're working on. It's right near the airport. It's called Project Hercules. This was Howard Hughes's old airport hangars in Playa Vista, which they were in the process of doing kind of base building improvements. This would become like Google's like headquarters. YouTube was there. I think it was Google's headquarters. It was a very large office. Just turning these old beautiful wood hangers into creative office. And it just totally clicked for me. I thought, this is what I really want to do. And I remember fly, I flew back and I think it was like 10 at night when I got home. I actually drove right through the West End in Dallas. I was like, this would be the perfect sort of to take one of these buildings and really sort of transition them. Now, that was early. So we sort of started with some smaller office acquisitions and we would do varying levels of improvements that started to slowly grow up until 2014 when we closed on the Centrum, which was a full city block in Uptown. And a $27 million renovation where we took a building that was essentially dilapidated and felt like it was falling down, rents extremely uh, well below market, and successfully really created community there. And that really is where it kind of all came together. How did you create a community at the Centrum? So it's kind of a trick. You have to sort of look at an asset, and they're all obviously different, whether you're whether you're doing an extensive renovation like that or like a true adaptive reuse, and you have to look at the bones and what's available. The Centrum is a very funky build-out. Like it, a lot of things were sort of done and built where you had like a 50,000-square-foot floor plate with a 30,000-square-foot floor plate right above it. So you've got this big roof that all the tenants are looking down on and this huge courtyard, which was actually leaking like a sieve into the garage and just all these sort of issues that existed that were enough to scare away all the guys who knew what they were doing. And we looked at it and we're like, well, this kind of gives us a good excuse to go in and sort of tear it all up. It's funny. I remember when we had closed on that and we were still working on our plan. I was at a, uh, an event at UT and for refic and Jeff Swope, who's a mentor and just an amazing guy had um, pulled me over and introduced me to someone. He said, this is Chad. This is Chad Cook. This guy's got the biggest balls in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like my stomach totally like turning. I was like, oh man, that is not like, I just didn't know how much trouble we were in. Right. But uh, look, we knew what we didn't know. And we hired a bunch of really smart people to help advise us. I think we fired all of them. Then we hired even smarter people and that would work with us the right way. And we kind of we're bent from that very early stage of like, how do we do this totally different? How do we change the way office is leased and managed? Because the model is, it hasn't changed in like 50 years, you know? Yeah. And how do we ultimately, 
the later phases of bringing in technology and really like just take a whole different approach. And so that's a long way of answering your question of like, we just took these areas that were eyesores essentially, and we turned them into common areas. And we, we went way past whatever common area factor you could charge back to the tenants, but we would improve it anyway, even though you know you're essentially not going to get paid for it. But the idea was we'll make up for this on an, the absorption of the building and the rent growth. And, you know, it was sort of a way to really kind of lean in. And uh, luckily the project worked well. When you said you hired some smart people and then you hi- you let them go and hired the next team, what did you learn there that's relevant as by way of like how you partner with folks today, whether it be selecting architects, contractors, right. designers, all the above? We learned a ton. A lot of it is you learn that the business is just full of people who are kind of replicating the same thing that they've done, which is natural, right? Yeah. It's easier. And especially when we were so focused on breaking the mold, and we had this very unique project that you know, no one on the team is, is as much experience as they had 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 done anything like this, especially to the scale of what we we're trying to create. So we learned it's really important early to kind of create the vision and to really, you almost create a culture on each deal around sort of that vision. And if the vision isn't there, we also learned like we don't chase the deal. Mm. We're just not very good at selling something whether it's that's to tenants or to capital that we don't really get excited about. Hopefully we're always in a position to be able to do that because the team is, we've got a great team now, really, really passionate about what we do. Um, we learned, I, you know, I learned to fire people quickly when it doesn't work mm. and really learned that um, I didn't want a flat organization. Like I wanted to have control in the right way, but also very importantly to empower everyone to know what they need to do. This is just leadership 101 that, you know, of course, everything for me seems to come the hard way, but we, you know, we had a, we, we could have moved a lot quicker on that and been a lot more efficient if I probably would have had some of those lessons learned before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I hear you. But we were young. We had a great capital partner on that. Angela Gordon did that deal with us and they really, they gave me a ton of room to run. I was, I was frankly surprised by it. I think they were too when they looked back on it. But luckily it worked in a deal like that. That's not that's let's call it creative where you have to have a vision. It's not just so black and white. The best projects you can't really fit into a spreadsheet. Totally. That's right. How do you I, I, I know probably the answer today, but we'll get there. But like, how do you sell a deal like that? One, I guess, like you just said, Angelo Gordon got it. Right. But. Is, are you selling more than just what's on the spreadsheet? Like, do 100%. they just have to get it? Uh, the spreadsheet helps, but that's so secondary. Right. If you start with the vision and of and what you're going to create, and look, you have to have all the market intel. You have to understand, like, here are the rents in the building. Here are the rents with the competitive set. Here's who the competitive set should be. Our strategy is always to create something that we feel will compete directly, but to be able to be at a discount, yep. right? Whether that's because we're in this secondary market next to that market at a lower land basis or in the case of Centrum, we were able to buy it cheap because it was falling apart. So what I found uniquely, especially when we really get dialed in is it all is about the story. And that starts with the vision and then how we tell the story. It's interesting. One of our early deals was centered around a renovation of this old atrium lobby. And I had, we had gone to painstaking detail to outline in our offering memorandum for the equity of all the risks and the strategy. And I toured a high net worth investor through 
who funded like $3 million, like a, this is a little deal, it's like $7 million of equity, and um, called me six months later and said, oh, I was just coming home from the golf course and I was thinking about you know, our deal and I wanted to ask, like, what did you tell me you were doing for, you know, whatever? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this was the thesis to the deal. How could this guy write a $3 million check without, <laughs> but you realize there's just saw my passion for it. And, you know, we take that really seriously. Yep. I mean, you get the money however you can. You have to believe in the deal, right? Um, you try to inform investors and, and we like, you know, we like experienced investors for that reason. You, you know, you don't have to worry, but I remember just feeling that much more pressure. We better make sure we perform. So it's all about the story. That's a long way. Speaking of a story, speaking of secondary markets adjacent to maybe primary markets and speaking of what you spoke about with Hillwood, which Alliance has become this lifetime project, you've kind of found yourself a lifetime project or at least Hopefully close not. to yeah. Um, um, yeah. You've, you've gone all in on a story called the Design District in Dallas. So maybe let's just start with what is this story and, yeah. and how has it evolved since you've been, invo- been involved? So it was towards the end of our hold of Centrum, 2018. We had bought and sold and renovated other sort of 80s office buildings. We were getting a little frustrated. We saw some of the same stuff showing up in other buildings. It's very easy to replicate. And it was just... I don't know. Frankly, I was tired of like walking through this old dilapidated building trying to figure out where you're going to put the fitness center in the conference room. And it just felt like we wanted to do something a little more authentic. At the same time, a close friend of mine runs a small hedge fund had been invited to Old Parkland. So if you know what Old Parkland is, it's one of the most amazing, it's partially adaptive reuse, the new development, um, extremely successful, highest rents in Dallas by a large margin. And it's an honor to be invited there. He didn't want to be in Old Parkland. He wanted to be near it, though. So Centrum is about three-fourths of a mile in one direction from it. Then you go another like half mile on, this is all along Oak Lawn, you're in the design district. So he was interested in going to the Centrum. We didn't have a space that fit for him. And he said, well, let's, why don't we go to the design district and see if you can find me a building while we'll I'll invest with you and we'll figure it out. So that sort of led us down there to really dig in. We knew we we're nearing the end of our Centrum hold. And we're, again, we're looking for something that would almost be a little harder to replicate elsewhere. And we went down there and found it was like nearly impossible. You had this great canvas of buildings. Almost that entire, we focused on 421 acres, sort of in that sort of south section of the design district up through Wycliffe. This very unique, um, dense, Finish out along you know, all these streets. Trimble Crow built um, almost that entire submarket within essentially a 10 year time period. So the vintage is all complimentary. Uh, you had a bunch of legacy owners, very, very low rents. But for someone like my buddy, if he would either have to buy a building or he could leave space cheap, but he'd have to do all of his own TI. There was no parking, there was no base building improvement either. So he would walk into these dark, dusty warehouses and just like it's hard for him to sort of see that finished out as like a cool office space. So we we didn't find anything for him. He ended up signing a really high rent in another uptown tower. But we looked at like this is a real opportunity, especially if we can get in and we can scale this. So we leaned in and we started, we've created we created a map where we took every single parcel. It'd be like DCAD, but 
uh, we could file our own information in each one. Because unlike Uptown and all these other markets we had been focused, it was extremely inefficient. Um, the information on who was leasing what, where were rents, who owned what. And we sort of developed a strategy. It took us about a year of sort of working through the idea of how we'd approach it. We made our first acquisition in September of 2019. And sort of fast forward, we have 26 uh, other parcels that we've acquired since um, that will hopefully end up being approximately 1.2 million square feet of adaptive reuse and ground up new development. So when people are out touring the market, you have, right. you have old Parkland. Again, it's like invite. It's, those are comps that are just yeah. we all drool over. Then you have kind of uptown which is still really expensive and it's got all the shiny buildings that are going up. And then you have design district, which I would just consider to be more, I don't know if the word's cultural, I don't know what word you use, but are the same tenants out looking at all three? Do they immediately come to you? Do they go to Uptown and then you, or you then Uptown, or is it a totally different tenant right. that would look at anywhere else? When we started leaning in on the idea, we looked around the country at other, what we call urban adjacent markets. Um, you can look at like Fulton Market in Chicago, uh, South End in Charlotte, uh, East Austin, where you had the sort of traits were generally smaller scale buildings, not the scale of like what you see in Uptown. Very different design, usually to the tune of the neighborhood, you know, the masonry, sort of what you would see. You, we saw a huge demand for this. There was successful almost across the board. So the in looking at this, we thought, well, if there's no class A office at all, like zero square feet in the design district. So you look at, you know, what's, what are the important things for an office user, right? They want um, walkability of some kind. We find that definition, definition can skew a lot depending on sort of the quality of the amenity. They want common areas that they can actually use or make use of. Um, easy access, all those sort of traditional things that, you know, a user would look for. Uh, so we sort of looked at this canvas where you've got, I think there's like 26 restaurants, all very unique. Um, this amazing sort of, uh, again, density street to street of these cool old buildings, which we've all sort of fantasized. Like I'm looking in here right now, you guys paid real money to put this brick against the wall, right? Like it's, this is like exactly what you can actually go plug into. If we get it right, they definitely are looking at us. We're not usually competing with all Parkland, although we think our, our proximity to that could be interesting if someone outgrows space there. Right. Our target is generally groups that are kind of focused on uptown or one of the urban sort of base markets there. Back to assembling 27 buildings yeah. and, and develop and thinking about it throughout a year. How do you go about buying 27 yeah. buildings to where the market isn't tipped off and pricing's going through the roof? Like, right. That was a trick. Yeah. Well, you're also trying to market your properties at the right time. Yeah. But you don't want your competitors to know what you're doing. Yeah. So our strategy from the beginning, we identified the top five brokers that worked that market and they worked it well. They knew they worked some surrounding markets as well. We said, look, we're going to work every deal through a broker. Even if we find it, you know, directly with an owner, we're going to try to plug one in. Uh, we, in a couple instances, we had to take care of those guys because the, the seller would sort of cut their fee at the last minute. So we would reach out, we would take care of it, which isn't traditionally how it's done. And we really pumped them for as much information. They all had a ton of information, but they weren't really sharing it with each other. So we thought if we can triangulate all that, we started a campaign of reaching out to the right owners, 
And we were very careful. We said, we're not going to retrade on a single deal because that's kind of also the sport down there. Yep. And it's worked. We've, our last three deals, we were approached by the owner directly. Just you sort of establish a reputation. We also really leaned in on how we were going to treat these renovations of the, for the adaptive reuse and how our ground up was going to look. Our goal is to actually make those feel sort of like they were an adaptive reuse, like an old warehouse you're turning into an office building, even though we're in new construction, to really respect the neighborhood and sort of the, we wanted to sort of enhance that feel, not go try to put a huge glass tower up in the middle of it, like you would see in uptown. So is it a district within a district? Have you rebranded your little covey? We were very careful. The design district brand is amazing and we didn't want to take away from that. It's a positive association. On Manufacturing Street, we acquired nine different um, assets, including three pieces of land to make up parking and did a base building renovation there. And we, so we branded that the Manufacturing District. Okay. That's going well. We're in lease up right now. Uh, so that's we'll refer to that as Manufacturing District, but we definitely want that to be known as inside the Design District. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's kind of... Go in on office a little bit. You would, uh, it'd be fair to say uh, you're a contrarian right now, depending on who you talk to. You think so? I don't, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm team office, but uh, I, and we're going to talk about the different types of office, but we're really going to talk about the stuff you're doing, which right. I think is in favor by big time. Yeah. But you said something before we just started. You said, I think I got the last two spec office loans in the country. Yeah. When did you get those? So, We had started construction with our equity partner uh, on two different office sites. Now, one of them is a 10-story building, five levels of parking with five levels of office. Amazing location right in the sort of entry, sort of heart of the design district. And then just a couple blocks over, a really unique five-story that parking will sit next to. Um, Both smaller buildings, the 10 stories, 125,000 square feet. It's called 1333. Uh, the five story is called River Edge. It's 140,000 square feet where we can, the thought is we can develop these small buildings. We can blow the amenity set out, not just the check the box stuff, but really the views of downtown we'll have from these spaces. And I don't know, just the way we're able to sort of design them, we're really excited. Um, but provide a, and provide a more a unique experience for the user with a smaller building but still have 30,000 square foot floor plates on the buildings and things that we know are important for the right users when they come along. So we had started work on those at the beginning of 2022 Okay. with the thought that we might or might not need financing. Our equity partner had the ability to potentially fund and then it sort of started to become apparent that we were going to need financing as we got um, into early summer. Yeah. Which by then it started to get real interesting. We had big lenders who initially had looked and said, oh yeah, we're great. We'd love those deals. Let us know when you're ready. And by the time we really got around to it, uh, all the big guys were shut down. Yeah. So we went out and worked our regional lender relationships and basically cobbled those guys together to get two different buildings financed, which was actually great. The local guys understand what we're doing. They've sort of, they understand the design district. They know they know what it is. Now we're creating a whole new market there. So there's a lot of education around that. There's a lot of education around spec office, which it's really hard to pre-lease office, especially in these urban environments. And you 
generally, if you look across the board, you hope for some pre-leasing and you'll see some pre-leasing, but a lot of these buildings will deliver largely vacant. So, you know, it's kind of like a roller coaster where about the time you're ready to come on back up, you still have to kind of push down a little bit further. Are you looking for a career in real estate? Fort Capital's purpose is to create a place that attracts the most talented individuals and provide them an environment to be their absolute best. I can honestly say they are successfully achieving their purpose. The team at Fort is unbelievably talented and I would argue the best in the business. They also offer some of the best benefits, including the opportunity to participate in deals, early Fridays, generous PTO, and excellent health benefits. If you're interested in joining the team, visit www.fortcapitallp.com backslash careers. On the pre-leasing yeah. part, is there some is there an insight that you have that maybe I wouldn't have on how you pre-lease an urban office building? Is it is it better marketing? Is it yeah? It is a full hands-on effort. We had our leasing call on the way over. We have a very talented team of four people at Transwestern, including the you know their regional leader for the office. Then we do weekly calls. They're on site at least two or three times a week. Um, to answer your question, it goes back to that storytelling. It's how do you get an office user that maybe has a very positive view of the neighborhood because they've been there for their design needs or for their restaurants. But how do you get them to understand that these buildings that are going to come up, what is that experience going to be? And there's technology that helps do that. There's amazing renderings you can use, but it's really, you're kind of constantly kind of churning and trying different things to help people understand the attributes of the assets. You know, every user has something different that's driving them as well. Sometimes they love the design, but they're worried about the access. Uh, sometimes they don't care about the access. They're worried about, you know, it was funny. I We socialize a lot of this with our good friends that are tenant reps. And on one day, this is very early on, I talked to two of my favorite ones. And one of them was like, you are going to kill it. You've got the best <laughs> restaurants literally surrounding you. You can walk to them, blah, blah, blah. The other one, these are both very talented dinner reps, was like, yeah, you're just going to have a hard time. There's no restaurants around there. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, But you take those things, like for example, I went back to the team. We're like, all right, we need a really clear map with like the amount of steps, like illustrating our walkability and, and explaining these restaurants. And we went a step further and bought coupons or certificate, you know, what gift certificates to a ton of these restaurants and started you know, going and hand delivering those to the brokers to bring them down there. We've done, I don't know, like 50 dinners down there. We'll just get one or two at a time down and get them to come to one of these amazing restaurants, have a good experience and just try to get them down there. Is there anything tenants are asking you for today that maybe they wouldn't have asked you for in 2019? You know, it's interesting. Are we kind of back to where we started? Well, well, so when you look at like the COVID implications for Wyme, uh, when it comes to open space. And I think a lot of that has passed. We're all using different, you know, air conditioning filtering systems now, and you're looking for touch lists where you can and things like that. But I haven't felt like much of the demand we've seen in our adaptive reuse that checks all those boxes. You can park in front of your space and walk directly in, right? You don't have to interact with anyone. We have a ton of open air in the manufacturing district. Uh, that hasn't driven any of the deals. The office user is definitely going through a time period where they're trying to figure out really what is their, you know, 
how do they maneuver around, you know, their office need with getting their employees back and not having to force them back, but trying to inspire them to come back and this balance of like the executive I've the executives that have been we've engaged with across the board want their employees back and they want them back as much as they can get them back. Um, and then you've got a lot of employees that are still, you know, pushing back on this work from home, which had, I think is fading quickly. I was going to say, like, if we had done this podcast three months ago, mm-hmm. I think it'd be a different story. But it seems like every single article right now, is, I mean, Disney, Salesforce, they're all coming back. Well, are yeah. you feeling that? Oh, 100%. I mean, look, think about it. when we were all home, our team was home for like three weeks, right? Yeah, and then we were thing. sort of back and out. But when... When people were all home and, and truly locked down for however long that actually was, was six months or some a year, but everyone was sort of at home. It was actually amazingly productive. Like I got so much done the last two days with this ice storm because everyone's at home and I literally got to catch up on reading and my sort of thought stuff I had to get through. And we had like a real time period of that. Well, now everything's open. So working from home might mean you're working out at 1030 or you're in a Pilates class at lunch or whatever that you wouldn't be doing if you were at work. And I think that's changed a lot. The productivity that was trumpeted, which was true at that time when everyone was locked down, I think has faded in a big way. Yeah. And employers realize like, you know, I think Elon said it best. He goes, you can, uh, you can not work somewhere else. Right. Yeah. You can work from home, but yeah. you gotta, you, you can, or you can go pretend to work that's for right. our competitors. But what's funny, I did look when all this sort of set, cause I was, I was like, save every article. Like, this is BS. This is not going to stick because we tried this before. Do you remember when Yahoo did this in like 2011 or something? I mean, but my longest employee that's worked for me is a controller who's amazing. And she works for two or three different groups. She will come in maybe one day a week. Like She doesn't need to be in her office and she's on all the time. Like, so I looked, and I was like, well, actually, that's the example that does work. There are certain situations but as a whole, I think it's going to fade. It's going to continue to fade. As far as demand for your buildings, is yeah. it a lot of uh, Dallas companies relocating or most of your conversations with folks relocating to Dallas? So there's a ton of relocations, uh, especially down our, in our manufacturing district. It's got a Culver City kind of feel in California. Okay. We're seeing a ton of demand that's California. You know, you, you have a lot of New York that's coming. We are actually seeing a lot of growth. Um, so, example, we have a 16,000 square foot tenant down there that was in 5,000 square feet before. We have an 8,000 that we just signed that was in like four before. Um, the California reload we have, which is up to 16,000 square feet also, was none here before. So, we're seeing a lot of positive absorption. You're definitely seeing a lot of larger users take less space, but they're generally moving from what this more commoditized office into into art type stuff, the differentiated product type. Is office trading? So let's say you get these built and they're leased. What's happening on, and, and, and I'll caveat that with every asset class is on hold right now. I mean, everybody's kind of chilling. Yeah. But in your thought, like once we kind of get through this rate increase right. and things begin to normalize again, Who's buying office? I think, and that's where I want to take the conversation. We're not talking about class B suburban. There's going to be a different buyer, but for the stuff you're building with class A brand new, is that market still out there? So 
you generally, if you're selling right now, it's probably not, it's probably not good. You probably have a debt maturity and you're not going to enjoy that experience. What's happened though, is you, you probably know better than I do. Um, when things kind of blew out last, what, October, November and industrial and multi with the, with the increase in interest rates and, I guess some labeled it a resetting, um, that put everyone on hold and office was like totally off. Now those spreads have come in and you're seeing those cap rates come back down on industrial, some of the multi bids are, you know, those pools are growing again, I believe. So it's still, there's not really a market today for these buildings we're building. There are buyers that are already leaning in Mm. saying, look, this is going to be back because the, they're going to want that more attractive yield, especially for an office building that's fixed that has some term. Like you can sort of forecast that a little bit easier. So our hope is that that will help push a lot of these um, these buyers back towards us. There are some that are already, and we've been approached in the last actually three weeks with three different, you know, larger institutional groups that are saying, "Hey." We want creative office, um, whether it's development, new development, or this adaptive reuse, and you know those meetings are starting to happen where people are are definitely going. They're they're looking for that product type now, but it's definitely not. You know, it's not a seller's market right now. Yeah, and it's not really anywhere. Right. Um, That's right. I come from the world where I'm giving zero to two dollars a foot in TI. Right. You're coming from the world where I, I I would say lots of TI. Right. And and one of the discussions around office is the TI. TI is all, if anybody that isn't in office, if you ask them why, like, well, it's, it's the TI. Right. How do you think about that? So it's interesting for us. Um, if you think about a creative office, yeah. so you've got a conference room, you've got an open break room, you'll have a few offices, potentially or breakout rooms, obviously restrooms, um, whatever. When the next tenant comes, you got a concrete floor generally, and you are. And we can show this historically. Our releasing costs are amazingly low. Uh, so if I have an old law firm space in a building we bought, and it's it's older and dilapidated, and I bring in a new group, you could spend anywhere from fifty bucks a square foot if you're lucky to eighty bucks to you can spend a hundred, hundred. I'm talking about the sort of second gen space here. Um, when you go to release that space, once you spent that initial sort of renovation, we'll, we'll strike deals at five or 10 bucks a square foot all the time. Oh, wow. Maybe 15, maybe 20 if it's extensive, but you're generally getting paid for that. And so far, it's also been a unique asset class in Dallas. Those spaces are making their way through more, but if you Google creative office Dallas, there's not a long list of people that pop up. So that helps us too. Do you care who the contractor is that's doing the TI work? Like, do you want it to be your contractor or does it have to be the tenants? Is that a deal breaker? How do you think about that? You very much care. Um, We're very flexible. If the tenant has a contractor they want to use, we will maintain the right to sort of approve them, um, but makes a big difference, especially a lot of it's in the, in the, with the architect though, where we've found savings. Cause again, we were raised on these class B buildings where we really had to figure out how to do things economically, but also make them, you know, fit the brand and have the certain aesthetic feel that we strive for. So trying to get that done and help, you know, sometimes we have to educate the tenants contractor and um, kind of show them what we're talking about. And you always have to sort of keep your hand on the wheel a little bit there as you kind of run into problems as you go. You had this great article or some something you were doing a Q and A, and I think it was the Dallas Business Journal. 
And you kind of talked about this halo effect, which we've been talking about, but it's basically every time you create value in a building, it's creating additional value for the buildings around it. When you think of buying 27 buildings or somebody that hasn't been in real estate, like what is, how, how do you actually think about that as you're planning? And maybe you could say, do you guys think about like, okay, well, let's start with these build. Like these are the two, is it always thought out that this is how we're going to get through the 27 buildings and this is how the halo will work? Like, Yeah. It's unique what we're doing in the design district because all these buildings are within like, you know, a square mile of each other. Yeah. Which hasn't ever been the case, really, where one building can draft off another. We did buy a building next to Centrum, and that successfully helped lift that because we knew what we were putting in. As we sort of established the canvas that we have now, we did start to look at, okay, this should be the order of things. We will hopefully, over time, have 14 new restaurants that will come in so we can help diversify those as we go. Um, We also... You know, again, that was a hard thing earlier of like, as we're aggregating these, trying to keep it quiet so we didn't bring in competition. Uh, obviously, someone will show up there at some point and get a site and do another office building. But it's been very intentional in sort of how they'll lay out. And obviously, we need to get leasing in, in the two buildings we have going. We have a large site in between that'll be actually 450,000 square feet, two towers, and it'll be the sort of the centerpiece of everything. So assuming we stay on course there. Um, it'll push it forward. Now we're also looking at it where we can use technology and how do we sort of connect these buildings. So if you're in one of the QIP buildings, you can have access to some of those mm-hmm. other amenities or garages and and even that uh, community of tenants where, you know, if people want to opt in, you don't force them to, there's a chance to really get more out of that landlord-tenant relationship than previously, you know, that you'd have normally. Office to resi. Is it going to happen? Is it one-offs? Are you even looking at it? So it's definitely happening. Okay. It's happening in a big way in downtown Dallas. Okay. Now, will it work? I don't know. I, I haven't studied it as much as the guys that are doing it, but you look at what Jonas is doing. I believe it's probably the solution for downtown Dallas, which, as you can imagine, we've been focused down there since I started QIP and looked at all those deals before they came to market or when they were on the market. And we never could get comfortable enough at the scale of the buildings and, you know, the parking issues. And can we, can we renovate these buildings and can we successfully absorb them at the rents we would need, et cetera. And I think you have to kind of wander the desert a while, but the amount of units that are coming and all the different buildings, the sheer scale, I believe it'll be very interesting to see, but I believe that will probably be the solution. Now how that works out, you know, for the guys that are doing it now, I have no idea. I mean, it's expensive to do, but it will bring in a whole new set of retail uh, tenants and it'll support those tenants. It reduces the parking need because there's good crossover. And, you know, you look back and the scale of what was built in the 80s here is like, it's ridiculous. Like <laughs> those buildings are too big and underparked, and obviously that never really worked for most of them. So I, I believe that is a solution. And do you have any insight into our cities offering up tax incentives, abatements, anything to make this happen? Or is it right all right now being done with uh, private capital? I don't have a ton of insight into that. It's generally all being done with private capital. I believe there are certain incentives and there's TIFs. A lot of that it will be around affordable housing, which is a, obviously a pretty serious need. Uh, and then it sort of is applied to the more sort of just specific areas of those developments, but it's almost completely done, uh, funded right now from, I think, 
the the private side. What about just office in the middle of nowhere? In the not not in the middle of nowhere, but you know, three story suburban office, not close to anything, but maybe an Applebee's. What's going to happen to all this stuff? So, six or nine months ago, and I love Applebee's. By the way, Applebee's good. <laughs> I would say that maybe two thirds of all product all yeah this sort of traditional commodity office product is obsolete and there's no use for it i think that's wrong now as i look in like a lot of those buildings are going to be lost for a long time and you know obviously it depends on if they're leased or not when those leases roll uh i i don't think you're going to see a ton, ton of demand but it's interesting we'll show certain users our new construction in the design district and they will be just floored they're like this is exactly what we want but once they get to the economics just because it's new construction or even the adaptive reuse which is very expensive to build they just can't afford it the footprints will shrink but those users still need space and they need affordable space and some of them are a lot of them are very largely driven economically and i mean could you convince us to go buy one of those buildings or take one for free? Probably not. Yeah. Not for a long time. And a lot of them are broken. But I do think the sort of death of commodity office is a little bit um, overreported right now. You know what I mean? Reporters are good at doing that. I know. It's always about the headline. What about WeWork? What about co-working? What about that side of the office world? Uh, the flexible office space is still an essential part and is as much um, ire as WeWork deserves for sort of their initial splash. Like they really changed the perception of that space and really created almost their whole new asset class. You have some amazing operators out there like Nick Clark's a close friend, Common Desk, that um, have had varying degrees of success, largely very successful across the board. Uh, they get it, um, but we're all kind of learning as we go. I heard this the other day, but that it, like we work across Dallas, their larger sort of corporate spaces were almost all completely full. Oh wow! So if you're you know if you're coming to Dallas from a new market and you're trying to figure out how much you need, where you want it, the easiest thing to do is go land in one of those spaces. Um, so I think I don't even really feel that the market is necessarily overbuilt. It's just some of the spaces weren't built um, with, the, with the right sort of quality and approach. You know what I mean? So um, I think it's an important part. The problem is you can't monetize it still. So would I love to have a floor of co-working or flexible space in each of my buildings? Absolutely. But if I can't get paid on an exit on that, if I can't get a uh, an acquire of my building to give us full credit for that, then I've just thrown a bunch of money away. And I guess that is true for what well, used to be where WeWork just comes in and leases a floor, but now kind of this newer model, which is like a management agreement, That's they, what won't I'm pay, to. they won't pay you on either really That's at right. this point. Now, if we had a, a, a floor lease to someone like WeWork, depending on what entity's on, et cetera, and how it's performing, you're a lot safer. The management structure is what's hard. But I get what those guys do. And actually we have a... We have two floors in one of our buildings on St. Paul Place downtown that uh, are are controlled by the building ownership, and it's amazing. It it works. I mean, we've had nine different tenants in that building flex in or out of that space over time. We've had tenants who don't have time for a finish out. We can put them down in that flexible space. It's a place that 
the tenants love to go hang out. Even if they're up on the ninth floor, they like to come down and, you know, use those amenities. So it's, it's huge if you can get into your building. But again, if you go to sell that, no one, you know, most of the buyers will say, oh, well, we're going to assume that that's empty for two years. And then are you kidding me? You're getting the equivalent of $30 net right now for that space, which yeah. is 80% full. And we can show like two years of that income building, but I don't know. Has they, it, has it was it, tough for them during COVID. Obviously. Has it always been that way? Like, was there a period of time before WeWork kind of went downhill where you could trade on that? Or is it, it's just never really evolved in the capital markets yet? There were some trades that definitely occurred on, easily on leases and on some of the management structures, but it's never really kind of found its footing like across the board. A lot of people just don't know how to treat it. We try, we've tried it around the country as we were looking at doing those structures because we'd prefer a management structure, especially if it gives our tenants easier access to that space. I don't want to create competition between me and that operator, you know, because I'll have a small suite in the building and they'll have a space that could also work within theirs. This is a selfish question for me. Maybe every episode's all a bunch of selfish questions <laughs> for me, but anybody doing podcast studios? My, I had a buddy come back the other day from the win in Vegas yeah. and said they just built a badass podcast studio, I think on the lobby floor yeah. with glass and TVs and they're drinking beer and people are sitting on the outside, like watching these live podcasts happening. Anything in any of your buildings? I'm that you're obsessed doing? with this idea right now. Let's go, baby. So what I really want is like a series of like recording studios so I can bring artists in because that's very expensive where they can come in musicians or uh, a podcast is part of that, obviously, and just sort of bring because, man, nothing's better than having musicians around, right? For that creative class. And um, you look at that math, it doesn't make any sense. What we're working on right now on 1333 is actually making our conference room be able to double as a podcast, which would have access to our lounge, which at nighttime we think is going to be very activated. Uh, Daytime too. Uh, I love the idea, especially if you're a tenant and you want access to that. I mean, it's not cheap to build these. So if you can provide that um, somewhere, I think it's a great idea. So we're trying to work that in right now. But no, you don't see that very much at all. We don't have to talk about the gentleman that kind of mentored you in LA that was the creative office but we just kind of talked about the Dallas market, which has been hot population growth. We've been in the office for a long time, different uh, set of views, but everything we just said, if I was to say what's going on in LA or San Francisco, or are your counterparts in those markets seeing positive momentum? Is this a Dallas thing? Um, it's a Dallas thing. Yeah. It's a mess, especially like San Francisco, where there's still a lot of pushback. You have a lot of very empty buildings. They're leased, but the future there is still very much untold. There is this big push we were talking about earlier to get people back. And I believe that will happen, especially with some of these layoffs, which obviously we never want to see. But um, that'll, you know, the easiest people, you know, to lay off are the ones you're not seeing very much, right? Again. There are special circumstances of very productive people, right, in different positions, but uh, it's a mess, and it's going to be a mess for a while. So it's, I don't even look at Dallas. Like, if you ask me what the Dallas occupancy is overall, I don't really care. I mean, it's a metric we'll look at, but we're going to track our competitive set and our differentiated class, and that's what we're going to look at. Same thing across the country. These headlines with 
whatever negative absorption, like that's fine. I get it. And that's real. But for that does not translate directly to Dallas at all. Thank goodness we're here. If you had to say like the magic, you see a lot of folks that aggregate buildings or they try and develop and, and they're kind of, you see the project going, you're like, eh, it just, they just missed it. Like yeah. even if they pour a lot of money into it, they hired great architects, they just missed it. Yeah. And then you walk through some places that might not even have put a lot of money into them. And it's like, man, they just nailed it. Yeah. That's what the is special the special sauce? What is the special sauce? So it's hard. It really comes down to that vision. So to be able to stand there and look at how you can move this wall, move that wall and create this common area that'll have a good line of sight, that'll have shade and breeze, and, you know, so it can be used in the summer to put this amenity next to it, this F&B concept or whatever it is, you really have to sit and study these buildings. Um, or if it's new construction, like we actually will use one of our bigger empty like warehouse spaces and go stand in the space and so you can understand the scale of what, because you can't look at a space plan on a piece of paper and understand it in the same way. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, that's, I think, what we've learned to do well and to sort of question everything and not just trust sort of what comes across. Because it's amazing when you do something really, really, sometimes very cheap, it can actually have a much better result. Yeah. Our sort of... um phrase internally, which, you know, pardon my language, but it's, we call it just fucked up enough. Yeah. Right. So you go look at some of these walls we have and like, it's all over the place. Like there's old cracks that have been sealed and there's pipes coming out and down and you're like, oh, that looks great. It's industrial. Like, yeah, that saved us money of having to kind of reroute it all inside. And you kind of learn what works and what doesn't there. So it's the whole art of making those deals work. It's placemaking. Yeah, I have to walk you through our office downstairs before you leave. Yeah. We paid a lot of money to make it look like it's been around for 100 years. Yeah. It's the irony that uh, even this brick, yeah. that's real brick. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny how humans actually like it maybe the way it used to be. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. And sometimes, look, you'll have cinder block in space. Like, God, what do I do with this, right? And you're like... Throw a coat of paint on it and run a big electrical line down it with your outlet at the bottom and just leave it fully exposed. And your architect's like, what? We can't do that. I'm like, trust me. Yeah. And the tenant's like, oh, that looks great. You just have all the electrical outlets exposed, you know? There's just <laughs> things like that that are, it's pretty funny. Yeah, this like, I don't know, it, over and over, we just keep arguing like, you know, with these sort of initial design where people are trying to hide a lot of this stuff and find, look, it's about natural light. It's about the functionality of these spaces. You know, you have to have great Wi-Fi, but you have to also look at the seating and think like, well, hey, if someone's sitting here, someone's sitting here, it's just simple things of like, they'll design a big bar in the middle where people are supposed to work on either side, but they'll make it too thin where you can't fit two laptops without feeling like you're on top of each other and just yeah. sort of pushing those conventions out a little bit. It's not brain surgery. It's just, you know, it's so hard to so get to slow down and really put yourself in the space and try to see what it's going to be. And, you know, that's what really inspires people most. And is that your job or is that the architect's job? It's the architect's job. We just are like a real pain in the ass and sort of think we're architects or we're always in there. And usually by the time we show up with them, we'll have the sort of general idea. My construction manager calls it my crown sketch. You know, I'll have like green space highlighted here, second floor deck here, breezeway here. And then 
where the architects do a great job is they'll come in and sort of take that initial sort of sketch and turn it into a vision. And there's a lot of tweaking. And then you always have to keep some money handy that once you're kind of mid-swing in construction to be able to kind of pivot sometimes because you might find this beautiful natural wall that was hidden on the interior that you want that to be the breezeway wall instead of you know this other new wall you're going to create, et cetera, et cetera. It's fluid. Okay, I kind of have t- two more things. And this one just developed as we've been talking, and, and maybe there is not a lot to talk about here. Maybe you do have an opinion. When you think of like related group, yeah, they're amazing. They're unbelievable. Yeah. I, I would I would liken you to maybe a mini uh, related group. You're you're place making. You're you're you are creating um, whole new areas of city. And then, and I'm going totally blank now, what's their New York development? Uh, Hudson Yards. If I just say that to you and you put your developer hat on and everything you've learned over the last 20 years, like what is, what do you think about with development at that scale and, and, and where does money go and how do they actually make money? I mean, I see that and I'm like, are they even making money? Is it just a, a big fee game? Like how does all that work? So they're definitely making money, at least yeah. the way I understand it. They actually created this sort of, like, they're pulling a ton of the Class A demand at very high rates from other parts of, of Manhattan. Yeah. What I think about, like, when I think of, like, Hudson Yard specifically, I think of the High Line. And what an amazing, I don't even know how much of that they funded or if they just connected to it, but what an amazing amenity that is. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, but that's, it was an old, I think it was an old rail spur that they turned into this amazing, like running path, walking path connectivity. And it goes, it connects through a larger area than just Hudson Yards, but you're directly attached to that. I think of the ground floor retail F&B experience. Like there's everything you would want. And look, Manhattan is way more walkable anyway. So you're generally going to have other options closer, but and then they have a new efficient office sort of design. And um, I think that does make a difference when you're looking to move from an older building to a newer building. And kind of if you're going to consolidate down some, like, you can get a lot more efficient than a lot of those older buildings were. Does a deal like that, and maybe you know, maybe you don't, does it have one equity partner in it or one vehicle? And, and why I'm asking, and, and then maybe you can relate to this in some of your deals, Oftentimes when you're placemaking, and I think about that honeycomb thing that Related has. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't remember. I, I read it. It's like a $50 million piece of art or something oh, like that. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? People can walk up and down it. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But my, my question becomes, when you're placemaking, if you're doing it throughout separate, you know, lots of different partnerships... Right. Oftentimes, one partnership has to pay for the thing that makes every other partnership great. Right. I just, I, as I, I've been through Hudson Yards once, and I look around, and it's just all these amazing things in the common areas. And I'm, all, I always ask myself, like, wh- which partnerships paying, or is it all in one? Like, right. how do you think about that? So, um, it's a balancing act a little bit. Yeah. Um, we think we call those holy shit moments yeah. where. <laughs> We'll put one amazing thing in the middle and that'll sort of help detract from the fact that, yeah, we just painted those walls instead of like recovering them or, you know, where we had found a more natural material to save money, but you want that sort of focal feature. Yeah. I mean, look, it comes down to if someone goes to look at your project and like six other projects, when they go home at night and they're kind of noodling back through the day, what are they going to walk away with that they remember? And then that's where we try to nail that piece. 
I don't know their capital structure. I assume there's a, you know, that's part of a large fund that they have and they're, you know, that thing's got to straddle two or three by now for oh, the yeah. size. So when we have certain amenities, um, like for example, in the manufacturing district, this is a little different, but we had multiple assets um, we acquired. We ended up pulling them together, but the way we, we bought uh, this old rail spur that runs behind it. And we looked at different uses for it. Like, could we get like a row of parallel parking in? We needed fire egress out of the back of the building. So we knew we needed some path. We just said, let's go with this and make an amazing, amazing pedestrian path. So we just put an agreement in place where any ownership of of those assets pays their pro rata share of maintenance. We divided that cost across them. They all get the benefit of it. It's a private amenity for our tenants. It's fenced in and it's... It's actually, it's really cool. Very unique to Dallas, but you, you know, you basically find a way to sort of spread it across those. And you just had to be very open with all the different partners that are involved in it and how you're treating it. You probably have some of the best taste. It's what you do for a living. Um, besides your own, what's your favorite? What, ins- what development across the country inspires you a lot? Oh God, that's a great question. So we spent a lot of time. I think the first place that um, I would go if I just want to take someone to see something really amazing is uh, Fulton Market. Sterling Bay uh, was sort of the original developer there. Those guys are just absolutely brilliant. The, what they've done and they scaled, that would be the number one company I'd look at to like, you know, that's where we'd want to be one day if mm. we really scale. They had an old cold storage building under contract and designed this like cool glass tower to pop out of it uh this is when fulton market was a meat packing district like there's blood on the street like meat is literally being like moved around it's adjacent to their downtown and look chicago's losing population their office is just draining but that was 2013 when that loi was agreed to with google before they announced it they bought 26 other sites i think it's 26 and without telling anyone and now that market is like six and a half million square feet and growing wow and it's been extremely successful both from a leasing perspective and you know being able to exit those projects it's got multi great streetscape amazing uh you know restaurants and they just did an amazing job sort of like creating a whole market there and you look at east austin it's the same thing right or you've yeah. seen like all these buildings pop up and do very well and at amazing rates and trading at almost record per square foot exits, Yeah, you know, even though it's a six story building and not 30. So I think it says a lot about where user demand really is today. And look, they're leaning in and they're picky and they'll pay for it. Usually if you deliver it the right way. Yep. All right. What keeps you up at night? Frankly, like being able to execute like we've got, we're capitalizing what we're doing, but we have this idea and this very unique approach and it's only a matter of time before it's replicated. Like being able to find the capital to do what we want to do before we kind of run out and miss the opportunity. Yep. Well, if you've enjoyed uh, this episode and you're an investor and you are interested in this kind of stuff, call Chad. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks a lot. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us 
And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on, and now we sit here today in 2022, at the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees, now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to, going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that, that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening, happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that, that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can 
go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Got right. It. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24 hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew that we worked with daily that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're ha it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And and that that's a good point. And I think the what what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third-party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is, or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal, and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you'd prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.